The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, the revolution will not be televised. Extraordinary scenes in Greece as the state broadcaster defies the government's attempts to close it down. Plus, the Guardian's NSA scoop was the spy story of the age. We get the latest response from America with Emily Bell. And coming to an iPhone near you, Apple launches iRadio. Will it be any good? And what does it mean for capital and heart? This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And with me in the studio this week are Mr. Steve Ackman, Managing Director of Something Else, and Sam Delaney, Broadcaster, Writer and Bon Viveur. How are you? <laughs> All right, thanks, yeah. For the benefit of listeners, I've got sort of a, like a cast, it's like a fabric cast on my right arm, which begins sort of my knuckle and ends halfway up towards my elbow. Uh, today's pop quiz is, how did I do this injury? And is I it, am right-handed. Is it clean? Is the answer clean? It is, it is clean. It's, it's not Partridge-related, as you might remember from I'm Alan Partridge Series 1. Do we ask 20 questions then? 20 or? questions. Is it sport-related? Uh, nope. Did, Sam, you, your question? did you punch a former Premier League footballer in the face after he was abusive to you at an award ceremony? That's a good question, but no. Okay. I was, I was dismantling some raised beds in my garden. Is this, this, is this the standard that we're now operating yeah, from? That is, yeah, it's, it turns out it's harder to get rid of a raised bed than it is to uh, erect it in the first place, I discovered. I think any podcast should end with at least two or three physical injuries, and if it doesn't, then it's a failure. But not, but not begin with them, yeah. No, oh, yeah. yeah, right. The paces, the paces formed with the floor. Right, first up this week, and I should say, actually, later I'll be talking to Emily Bell about the media response to the Guardian's NSA story. But we start this week in Greece, not literally. We're in the Guardian Studio One. But this is the story about the Greek government, which found a novel way of making new savings by closing down the state-funded TV and radio stations. The Hellenic Broadcasting Corporation, or ERT, went off air earlier this week, but some members of staff continue to broadcast a skeleton schedule over the internet. Uh, It's also been found out that the EBU, that's the European Broadcasting Union, has been helping keep it on air. A government spokesman said the station was a haven of waste. Sounds like the Daily Mail talking about the BBC. Um, Steve, what do you make of this? Extraordinary scenes. I mean, what what a story. Well, the most extraordinary thing about it is the speed with which it happened. You know, it gets announced and they pull the plug and that's, and that's it. Yeah, Sam, I mean, it sounds a bit like something you'd see, although much more interesting than something you'd see on uh, Aaron Sorkin, the newsroom. You know, I mean, what, what, a, what a story. There were newscasters uh, before it went off air saying, you know, this is unbelievable. And another said it was a, a blow to democracy. And uh, one of the uh, Greek opposition leaders said it was, uh, to say it was a coup was, was not an exaggeration. There'll be a few Tories and Daily Mail uh, editorial staff looking at this thinking, what a fantastic idea. If you're going to do it, do it quick. It's the way that Fergie resigned. Just do it overnight so there's no time to mess it all up with different people sticking their oar in about whether or not it's a good idea. But I did love the way that they continue to broadcast in the guerrilla style. It made me think that, you know, that, that would be a fantastic future for broadcasting in many ways if they did try and shut down the BBC and you got people taking control of the means of broadcast, and guerrilla broadcasting took hold, it would probably be a lot more interesting, wouldn't it? And if it was the BBC, Sam, any particular programme you'd recommend that they, 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 they carry on broadcasting on that skeleton service? Well, none of them. What I think is is that the existing staff would barricade themselves in, uh, use all of the resources they have, but they could cut out perhaps some of the red tape that might hamstring some of their you know, creativity. 
and just start broadcasting any kind of old renegade stuff that comes to mind. It would be interesting even if it just like, lasted a weekend, wouldn't it? Just like is, this, just like this, basically. Just, exactly. Re- renegade stuff that comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> Gloves off broadcasting. <laughs> well, that is what we've seen, uh, Steve, isn't it? I think that's what we're seeing in, in Greece right now, uh, in the sense that there are staff inside who barricaded themselves in, literally, and the, and the latest reports were that the police were going to enter the building and, and, and take them off air. Uh, well, but you, you fear this isn't going to end, well, it's clearly not going to end happily, but it could end up tragically. Uh, yeah, I mean, it isn't going to end happily, but the interesting thing it throws up is is exactly that. You know, the internet just throws up all sorts of possibilities now, and I suppose the other thing that that feels a bit bizarre to me is, I, I mean, clearly this is, this is a democracy, so this is not a, a, a sort of, you know, the mouthpiece of the government uh, as a broadcaster. However, you would have thought the government needs a broadcaster that it knows can probably be fair to it in terms of what it's trying to achieve. This is it. I don't know the state of the rest of the Greek media, but assuming that, that the TV and radio channels and newspapers are in private hands and that, that, that that's very similar to, to every other democracy where there's all sorts of views, there's going to be a lot of media that's going to be hostile uh, to what the government's trying to do in terms of its austerity programme. Just seems It just seems a very strange decision to me. I mean, really, how much was this broadcaster costing? Surely there must be savings, equivalent savings, that, that can be made elsewhere. Yeah, I think the, the government said they wanted to cut fifteen thousand uh, jobs, and this was this was two and a half thousand. So it's, it's the first sort of thing they've done in this in this ilk. And Sam, I don't think it's, it's fair to say that the broadcaster, this, this particular broadcaster, it was hardly the government's fiercest critic. They've uh, you know found room there for some of its sort of to employ some of their political favourites and. Uh, and it sort of showcased government policy. So, you know, it's not as if it was, uh, you know, it's hell-bent on criticising the government in the first place. Mm, but I, presume, I, I mean, like, you know, you're talking about other the private media sector. There are other commercial Greece. broadcasters. Yeah, there, you, yeah, you would think that they would be, <laughs> this is something that they think might kickstart, uh, you know, revenue and business in the private sector. And therefore, they're not going to have much, there's not going to be much debate and there's not going to be much criticism. Because, you know, again, if it happened in this country... How many commercial broadcasters would be complaining? They'd think, oh, what a perfect kickstart to our business, which has been moribund. This will, you know, bring in even more listeners and advertising. Although if it happened in the UK, Steve, you'd worry about the quality of the news, uh, some of the news um, coverage in the absence of the BBC, wouldn't you? Well, I suppose so. But, but, but then if you're, if you're Sky, you know, I mean, Sky, Sky News is a very good service. You'd, you'd, I mean, Sam's right. You'd see it as an opportunity, wouldn't you? Well, plenty more of that, of course, and all the breaking news at uh, guardian.co.uk. It's time to talk newspapers now, where there was good news at Express Newspapers, where owner Richard Desmond announced 40 new editorial roles, but not such good news at The Times, where the acting editor, John Witherow, said 20 editorial jobs would go. In a recent interview to Media Guardian, Desmond said he may have been slow off the mark when it came to digital, and said it's quite nice sometimes to be a dedicated follower of fashion as opposed to being a pioneer. But Sam, it's fair to say, isn't it, that uh, The Express and The Daily Star, when it comes to playing catch-up with the, the Sun and Mail Online, haven't they? They sort of disappeared over the horizon, haven't they? He's got, there's work to do. It's not something that I find myself logging on to very often. I use news now a lot, basically just to follow football news. And you, don't, you never see the Star, and it's, I don't even think they're on news now, are they? You get bloggers on there that are sort of have, uh, have got more traffic than, than the Star or the Express Online. Tell us I, about news now, just for people who may not have used it. Newsnow is a fantastic, what would you call it, like a news filtering service where it just filters out. You put in your search term, in, in my case, West Ham United. And, and mine. And mine. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and also Steve's case. And it just throws up uh, every single story, yeah. lie, a link to every single story across all news platforms in the world. Wherever West Ham is mentioned, it will come up on your feed. So that's my home screen. And uh, it, uh, I say every news platform in the world where, where West Ham are mentioned, other than the star of the Daily Express Online, who either never runs stories about West Ham, which I think is unlikely, 
or they just have not even got themselves because I think you have to register with News Now, don't you? I think you actually have to do something to get onto the News Now service. But it has filters within it, doesn't it? So that it lists, you know, the the, the sort of whatever it is, ten most read stories about yeah. your topic, uh, the ten ones that are, uh, that may be getting most traffic at the moment, or whatever. Yeah. But it makes it the very easy to now to, the ten that were previously yeah. hottest, and then just a chronological like timeline. It's a fantastic thing. Because also it takes away prejudice because you're only following your own subject. So, you know, regardless of who it is, regardless of which news source is is delivering it, you're not really guided by the brand. You're guided by the subject, if you see what I mean. So I would never pick up a copy of The Star of the Express. I'd never pay for it in the news agents, I don't suppose. But you'd click on it if it was there. It's just not there. So it's Steve, just what, not there. Steve, you do plenty of uh, digital content. What, what would your advice be to Richard Desmond? Uh, what, what, should, what sort of content should he be investing in? I think the challenge for, for both the Star and the Express is what do you stand for in the online space? It's very different from when you're on a newsstand and there's the, you know, the 10 national newspapers lined up and you, you, know, you pretty gr- much grow up knowing what each of those newspapers stands for. You're, you're moving from a, from a place where, where you're competing against those 10 other newspapers in the news agent to suddenly uh, a place where you're competing against everything everywhere in the world. And by starting early, I think the Mail and the Guardian have managed to, to develop what, what, what they stood for in, in print form, but go for a global strategy. I'm not sure that the Express or the Star have a, have a niche that's there really to be exploited. I mean, as you said, the Mail and the Express are very similar, and the Mail has already leapt miles ahead. I mean, really, what does the Star stand for? It stands for sport and for bikini girls. Well, there's plenty of other places you can get that from. So, so I think the first thing is define what the proposition is. Um, you know, be really clear about uh, what the brand is going to stand for in the online space, which the male did. And, you know, you look at the sort of female side of, of the male and they've pushed that massively heavily online. What's the niche around the Star of the Express brands that, you know, where they can adopt the same tactic? Yeah, how, how do you outside by the... Sidebar of shame. Cancer. Not easy. House prices. Diana. Yeah. That, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> and, the, and the weather. No, to, to be fair, the Express. In that sense, I was just thinking about it, the Express does have a clearly defined kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, it has a clearly defined brand because that's what you immediately think of. I can't with almost any other newspaper. I can't think of it sort of so so clear. But I don't know whether or not that's going to play online. It just works well on covers for for their particular target audience, I guess. Uh, and Richard Desmond, it also turns out, wants to run the national lottery. Uh, Sam, I mean, but, he's been running the health lottery, which hasn't been to everyone's taste. Yeah, but Richard Desmond just says things like that, uh, you know, as he you know better than anyone. He just, he'll just say anything. Next time he'll be going, I want to buy Buckingham Palace and, <laughs> you know, and, and rebrand it and put my face on the flag or something like that. He just says stuff if he's not been in the news for a while. And, you know, partly just for a laugh, because he's clearly a funny bloke. And uh, clearly just keep, and partly just keep himself in the headlines, keep people thinking about them. All, all of the things but that he's you got read. his own lottery, so you imagine there's slightly more, slightly more credibility. Do you think to this? Well, he's got his uh, own lottery. What's yeah. he want the national lottery for? Money, more money, bigger prizes. Mm. I don't think he's going to buy a lottery. I don't think he has any intention. Just like he didn't have any intention of buying the Sun. It's just a thing to say, isn't it? Steve, what do you think? Is, is Desmond's star, is it waxing or waning, do you think? I mean, Channel 5 share was up last year and Big Brother's doing very good business. But as, as you guys have already suggested, you know, the, the Express and the Star, they're, they're kind of the periphery uh, in terms of newspapers. But sales at both titles, I think the Star on Sunday wasn't the Express, the Sunday Express last month, were, were both up. So I don't know, mixed signals really. 
Well, I'd, I, I just don't think you can underestimate someone like Richard Desmond. I mean, he's just a proven businessman and, and people laughed at him when he bought Channel 5. You know, no one else would touch it. They laughed at him. He slashed it to the core and yet he's making money from it. He's doing what he does best and, and, and actually did a similar thing with the newspapers, didn't he? I mean, he uh, his approach to business is very much get the cost down as much as you can at all costs, make sure the thing makes money. And, you know, it is an approach to business. It works for him. I think you'd be pretty mad to underestimate him, actually. I, you know, he's 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 got a, a, a very long, successful track record. And the other thing that he does is he always likes to do away with the niceties that people can't see are actually a hindrance to problem making. He's very unashamed about it. And especially in the media, there's a lot of kind of niceties that seem to exist that he is just very, he kind of finds laughable, is quick to eschew, usually to a massive commercial benefit. Like in the magazine world, he will openly and without shame, take the existing leading magazines and, you know, font for font, page for page, layout for layout, mimic them exactly, put it on slightly cheaper paper and sell it for half the price. Bundle them all up together in bags, sell a load, effectively putting the other mags slowly but surely out of business. And why not? Yeah. I guess this happened to you, Sam, you speak from bitter experience when you were heat editor. Was well, this I wouldn't say it was bitter experience or? because, you know, at that period we were both able to survive. But I was sort of impressed by his... Uh, the gall. Yeah, by the gall of it because there was no kind of trying to hide it and there was no kind of being prissy about, oh, our own editorial brilliance or any of that. Because he just thought, right, listen, I'm not in this to win awards or anything. I'm in it to shift a load of money. And there's other people running around the same industry making out that there's some kind of like huge creative endeavour going on. Well, the reality is everyone's going about the same thing as Richard Desmond is doing. He's just more honest about it. And there was a Big Brother story in the front of the Daily Star yesterday, I think. So that must mean that Big Brother coming back to Channel 5 soon. Yeah, or maybe it's exciting. already back. Well, things are not quite so rosy at the Times, where acting editor John Witherow has announced 20 editorial jobs to go. Uh, he told staff that the era of being subsidised is coming to an end. Um, and Steve, this is a reference to the split between uh, the parent company, Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation, which is dividing up its entertainment and publishing businesses. Once upon a time, the entertainment side used to, used to subsidise the, the publishing side, but no longer, or not not for much longer. Yeah, and obviously this is something that uh, within, I think, you know, many sort of shareholder news international circles, it was something that had been agitated for for, for a long time until obviously the, the hacking scandal probably accelerated that and allowed that to happen. I mean, as a non-newspaper person looking in, I've never, and, and I'm surprised, especially bearing in mind the conversation we've just had about Richard Desmond, because obviously Rupert Murdoch also, for Normally successful, definitely got his eye on the bottom line, knows how to make money. I've never quite understood the sort of tolerance around the times and its loss making. And it always seems to be explained as just the fact that Rupert Murdoch obviously is a newspaper man, loves newspapers, and therefore, it, you know, it's kind of something that's being accepted. And yet, you know, you look around the rest of the, the news international operation, again, everything is about, uh, it is about turning out fantastic products, actually, but it is about making money. I mean, I, I couldn't believe until I was reading today the size of the losses that the Times are racking up every year. It, it seems extraordinary to me that, that this hasn't happened earlier. And Sam, it used to be, it was traditional that the, the Times losses were subsidised by, by big whopping profits at the um, Sunday Times. But now the Sunday paper's not the force it once was either, so, you know, that brings it... They're so boring, some of these newspapers, aren't they? Like, I mean, in all honesty, you know, we talk about, you know, creative, um, it being a great creative product, and, and Richard Desmond has less of an emphasis on that. But if you look at some of the things that Richard Desmond's papers do, like, say, The Express is one of the few newspapers to go up, because it will just hammer home. It, you know, if you look at covers, 
headlines of some of, of his newspapers and certain other, you know, usually tabloid newspapers, you can see that in tough times, they are working so hard to sell that newspaper, you know, and not always at the expense necessarily of journalistic credibility. Obviously, I'm not talking about the star here. That's entirely at the expense of any journalistic credibility. Quite right, too. Right. But, you know, not always at the expense of journalistic credibility, but they are working so hard to give people a proposition that despite the fact that all this information is available for free online, despite the fact you've got to have a load of newspaper cluttering up your house and all of the other inconveniences that go hand in hand with buying a newspaper, you have to get this newspaper. That kind of like, we are going to balance having something that is editorially brilliant, that we can be proud of creatively, but is still just so commercially aggressive, you know, and it's going to force people to buy it. And you pick up a Sunday newspaper, a Sunday broadsheet. Guess what happened when, what was the one I saw at the weekend? It was a cover story. And it said, guess what happened when I had my genome mapped, right? And I thought, Jesus Christ, the newspaper industry is dying. (laughs) And the best you can hope for most weekends is 20 midweek suppers involving sea bass, right? (laughs) And you think, for crying out loud, right? And then, yeah, and the Sundays are worse than anyone, aren't they? But then I picked up the Times on a Monday and it had a picture of what's the name, Nadine Dorries, and it just said, the most shameful thing that has ever happened to me in my whole life. And it said, T2, page 12. And I thought, now that's what we need more of. (laughs) That is it. That is interesting. That is a public figure, an elected representative of our people, but someone who we know has eaten kangaroo arse and all the rest of it in the jungle. And she is saying enigmatically on the cover of the Times of London, the most shameful thing that's ever happened to me. Right, you think, that's going to be something huge. What was it, a rubbish sea bass recipe? Yeah. yeah, no, actually it was her hair falling out, so I feel bad making light of it to an extent. But I wasn't to know that when I saw the cover of the newspaper. What I thought was, I have to buy it. I didn't buy it. I got it free because I was reviewing the newspapers that day. We move on. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, Steve, this might be one for you. Uh, it's time to talk digital and uh, time to talk Apple. Uh, two things we do occasionally on this podcast. And Apple have unveiled a, a new product. Uh, it's not an iPhone, it's not an iPad, uh, it's an iRadio, which hopes to take on Spotify and Pandora in the battle for streaming music online. Now this, I like the sound of. The service will be available for free, I like the sound of even more, to any Apple device and funded by advertising. I like it a bit less. Or you can pay a subscription to hear it ad-free. That sounds like a, uh, that's a, that's a novel uh, funding formula. Someone tell Spotify. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of this? Uh, what do you make of this, Steve, first up? Well, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm one step ahead of, ahead of the curve because I'm apparently one of the people who will get it for free. Because I pay for the service that shares my music library on lots of different devices, Ooh. which is about 20 quid a year. Yep. Uh, and um, if you're one of those people, you get it for free. I mean, there's, there's a few things here. I mean, first of all, if you're Spotify or Last.fm or Pandora, I would imagine uh, over the past few days you've had uh, some pretty panicky emergency meetings going on because, you know, this is the site of the big tanker coming in your direction and it's bound to cause... Uh, alarm bells ringing I think you know I mean the, the the basic maths is just the amount of people Apple has immediate access to whereas obviously Spotify, Pandora, Last.fm all those services have got to go out and recruit those people and so suddenly the whole game changes for those guys the second thing is, is as you've alluded to, which, which, is, which is that Apple have said this will be funded by advertising you know, don't underestimate how Apple can transform an industry and uh, we've seen that in their approach to so many different things. We've seen how how they've you know sunk huge companies in the telecoms arena. Uh, how the music industry is still paying to this day for the fact that they allowed Apple 
that space to come into the music industry. And so clearly, if they're going out selling advertising and they've got a base of, I, I think I'm right in saying potentially 300 million people, that, that might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's that's the figure I've read. Um, I think that's pretty scary if you're a large radio group because that's the advertising money you're going after. And particularly... You know, the real issue for radio at the moment is young listeners. Young, young listeners are not tuning in, 15 to 25s and under, are not tuning in in the way they once did. And they are obviously using Spotify. They are listening to music through their iTunes. Suddenly, if Apple is able to offer advertisers a route to reach those people, for radio stations who are trying to target the same demographic, that could be something of great concern, I think. And saying the route that most commercial uh, music broadcasters have gone down is, is you know, all music, uh, less chat, uh, uh, which means there's, you know, less of a point of difference between them and, and streaming services like the Spotify and the one Apple's about to launch. So maybe they need to get the personalities back. Yeah, well, I was going to ask Steve, because he obviously makes a lot of content for radio, whether or not that, you know, when you look at the audience, like you say, you know, for someone in your line of work, that is now going to be your main clients is provided by someone like that if they're going to start doing content that is beyond just music. I read here, actually, that the only voice that I've read that they're definitely having on there is Siri, who you can actually ask questions of, which will be a complete waste of time because Siri has never answered any question to anyone. <laughs> Certainly not accurately. It'll be worse. It'll be worse than some commercial radio DJs, and that's saying something. <laughs> what? So they can have Siri as a, as a presenter. They should get Siri as a breakfast host. On they should poach Siri, shouldn't they? Magic or heart or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, they say I'm a bunt and that heart. Yeah, the, the Siri all request show. No, no, I said Phil Collins. I'm sorry, I can't Collins. Help you with that. Would you like me to search the internet? <laughs> I think from what I've read, I mean, it is it's pretty much going to be a music streaming service, and that's probably more of a threat. I would have thought to people like Capital than maybe someone like KISS, who I think have made really great strides, especially in the digital space, uh, in terms of um, some, of the, some of the sort of off-air stuff they're doing. You know, they, they have really developed themselves as a brand away from the radio station in terms of YouTube and in terms of um, uh, the apps that, that they're creating. And they have, you know, they have programming that, that is very closely related to their brand, so they still stick with specialist music shows in the evening and that sort of thing. Someone like Capital, who who is basically, aside from their breakfast show, is pretty much a non-stop music service. It's not something that's going to happen imminently. Of course it isn't. You know, this is a big, healthy radio station. But you look at the slow decline of newspapers, and I suppose that's the alarm bell that would be ringing here. You think, well, could this be the thing that just starts that, that, that slow decline uh, for, the, for the established broadcasters? And finally this week, there were two BBC interviews making the news. One was Sarah Montague on the Today programme, who was criticised for the way she interviewed the leader of the English Defence League, Tommy Robinson. But that's not going to concern us now. This is... It's an interesting psychological phenomenon. Like Tuskegee, like the, prob- the problem is down, that conspiracy theories like this are oh, believed. Are believed in. Hey, what, listen! What? I'm here to warn people. You keep telling me to shut up. This isn't a game. Okay, our government, the U.S., is building FEMA camps. We have an NDAA where they disappear people now. You have this arrest for public safety, life in prison. You are the worst person I've ever interviewed. No, no, it's basically off with their heads, disappearing. David, thank you for being with us. InfoWars.com. Half past 11. You're watching the Sunday politics. We have an idiot on the program today. Coming up in just 20 minutes. You will not stop the republic. Humanity is awakening. InfoWars.com. And that was Alex Jones, not the uh, co-presenter of BBC One's The One Show, <laughs> but the uh, right-wing shock jock who joined Andrew Neil on the Sunday Politics this week. Uh, Sam, what did you make of it? Ent- but, but obviously very entertaining. 
we'd seen him before uh, do the same sort of routine with Pierce Morgan. I personally like any interview in which someone shouts aggressively, this is not a game. And it's something I intend to start introducing to my own punditry. But you you ran a very interesting piece on your uh, website about... um, It was by Charlie. He's one of the writers of the 10 o'clock show who's originally booked to uh, fill that slot. We will link to David Aranovich. We'll put a link on the the link. And he makes a very good point that he was there to, you know, explain exactly what the group does. And, and, you know, have a a rather more sober look at something that is obviously of huge interest to many people, but is kind of shrouded in all of these kind of funny conspiracy theories. And we all talk about lizards or people dressed as owls in the woods in Ohio and all of those kind of gags. But actually, you know, the Bilderberg group, I would like to know more beyond all the madness that surrounds it. And uh, what they did, as your writer so uh, brilliantly pointed out, was they booked a guy who they knew was just going to give straightforward, crazy, you know, conspiracy theories. And entertainment. it was very entertaining, of course, seeing him shout at Andrew Neil and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, very enjoyable to watch. But, but, enlightening, you know, perhaps, so. perhaps give him his own little slot outside the studio and just let him shout. Or maybe just, you know, give him a 10 minute slot daily. You know, like that little slot they do after Channel 4 News where people sit in a white room and pontificate. Just do that, but with Alex Jones every day, just shouting his head off. People like to see a man shout their head off on TV. Guys like that, I think, are only good for the shtick, that, that, you know, for the two-minute clip you end up with on YouTube that gets a bit of attention to your show, and he's getting mm. a bit tired, because as you say, we saw it all with Piers Morgan. It was sort of jaw-dropping then. It's kind of a bit tired now, isn't it? Yeah, it was cheap. It was, it was a cheap shot, wasn't it, by the show, I guess. Cheap shot. Well, on that note, I shall say thank you to both our guests, uh, Steve Ackerman and to Sam Delaney. It's time for part two now, and with me from the Guardian's offices in New York is Professor Emily Bell of the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism. Hello. Hello. I'm actually in my bedroom. I'm not in the Guardian's offices, unfortunately. My, my no, bedroom keep... is a lot less lavish, and uh, the chairs are more comfortable. Bang goes the facade. <laughs> actually, it's, also, it's thrown, we've thrown the NSA off the trail. Well, that's well. Well, it's it's a uh, it's not at all a coincidence. You should mention that, Emily. Yes, it's the the Guardian's revelations about the U.S. National Security Agency's monitoring of phone call and internet data was the story of the week, probably the year, and maybe even the decade. Um, Emily, no shortage of things to talk about the story itself, but there was a, a, a big media angle in here too, in that that it was broken by the Guardian, which is traditionally, uh, you know, of course, a UK-based newspaper, which has, you know, for the last few years been been building a presence in the US. And there was some confusion actually, wasn't there, between who actually broke it between the Guardian and the, and the Washington Post? Were that just sort of old habits die hard, or how did that happen? Well, I mean, I think that there was no confusion really. The Guardian definitely broke it, as far as most people people would tell. There were some issues. There were some issues about whether you know who had access to the leaker first. It was definitely the case that uh, that the, the Guardian got sort of first first of the punch. And you know, the Guardian is pretty well known here among, if you like, the sort of what you might call the the coastal elites, <laughs> which is of people who live in large uh, places, large cities like New York, Washington, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco. You know, if you're if you're a liberal who is interested in the news and looks at the internet occasionally, you'll definitely have come across The Guardian. And actually, The Guardian had a pretty high reputation here um, two years ago off the back of the uh, WikiLeaks story, which actually yeah. played pretty lightly. That, that, was a, that was a big story in the States as well. But this is a, of a different order. This is taking, uh, if you like, something which is absolutely the heart of what you, what, what, what you would sort of define as really hardcore. The, the sort of the hardcore scoops of American journalism have been disclosures around government and security. And the mark of a media organization really is how they can 
garner those scoops and then how they manage them uh, in, 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 in the wake of, um, if you like, getting hold of the information. So I think that, you know, that there's been a little bit of um, the New York Times, for instance, which was completely cut out of this, and that's interesting in itself. But the New York Times has been describing uh, the, the, the Guardian as a UK-British newspaper. And, you know, yes, okay, that's an identifier for somebody who really doesn't know <laughs> what the Guardian is. Um, it doesn't really reflect what the Guardian is becoming, which is largely um, web-based and uh, with an increasingly international focus. This is such a significant story because the Guardian's, you know, it's, it, it's got a large office now uh, in New York run by Janine Gibson, an old friend of ours from the uh, media broadcast. And there are sort of 50 plus journalists, I think, based in a very trendy loft downtown. And that they've made some sort of inroads, but I would say that putting on my extremely neutral hat on this, I would say they hadn't really had uh, you know, a significant impact up until this point. But this has changed everything. This is a complete sort of game changer because this is a, this is a once in a generation type story. You don't get leaks of this magnitude. You don't get stories which really peel back, if you like, the machinations of how government is dealing with personal data. And also there's the element here of, of the implication of, you know, the technology companies which are enormously powerful in terms of how much media and kind of connectivity they have recorded which relates back to our own sort of personal activities. So in other words, you know, it's tying a very sort of tight line uh, between how all of those kind of levers of power work. And, and it's important to say also that The Guardian is here. Uh, it has First Amendment protect, protections in the US, which means that, you know, as a publisher, uh, you are very unlikely to be uh, pursued or prosecuted. However, a a couple of weeks ago, uh, it came to light that there were, uh, if you like, the sort of the authorities here had been looking very closely at the activities of a Fox News reporter, as well as uh, monitoring the phone calls of uh, the Associated Press in two separate incidents. But it feels as though nobody, if you like, is above suspicion and uh, that you can expect, you know, very tight scrutiny at best and uh, possible prosecution at worst from, um, from anything which, which looks like it's going to breach... Uh, government security. And it's very much, I think, as you've hinted at there, uh, Emily, it's very much a story of our times in terms of um, privacy and the sharing of information online and, and, and big government. Uh, I mean, people are already saying it's going to, you know, going to surefire hit to, to, to win a Pulitzer. What do you think? Well, um, as somebody who now works at the Columbia School of Journalism, which actually hands out the Pulitzers, I could not possibly comment, um, except, except to say... How invidious a position can I put you in? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't be more com- I couldn't be more conflicted, John. So I can't. I can't really answer that. It's really unlikely that anybody else is going to get a bigger scoop this year. I would imagine. You know, it would have to be something fairly mind blowing. And as long, you know, the, the, I mean, the caveat to all of this is, you know, that the story looks sound. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of heat and pressure on who is Edward Snowden at the moment. You know, just this sort of, if you like, conspiracy theorists are having a field day, saying, well, you know. Um, is he who he says he is? You know, how sound is he as a source? What is, is he a Chinese spy? I mean, some of it kind of pretty ridiculous stuff. And without being flippant, Emily, you can almost feel the uh, the film of this episode going into pre-production with, uh, with, with what do you think? Ryan Gosling penciled in for the Edward Snowden role. Or, uh, he'll oh, be Ryan happy with Gosling, that. He's very good, yes. I'd already, I'd already thought um, uh, Matthew McFadden for uh, Glenn Greenwald. They are slightly spooky looky-likeys. 
and you know, I, I, presuming there's a, there's a revolving carousel of actors waiting to play Alan Lusbridge in all the various films that he's likely to appear in <laughs> over the next couple of couple of years. It has completely transformed the way that the Guardian is 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 seen. I think over here, uh, and certainly broadened its appeal, which is which is good news. Okay, and finally this week, Emily, uh, onto the Daily Show, where there was a change of uh, a change of anchor. Uh, John Stewart is uh, busy elsewhere. So Britain's very own John Oliver took over the hot seat and uh, well-received by all accounts. Yes, according to The Guardian, which is obviously championing the British takeover of American institutions, it was an absolute triumph. Um, And John Oliver is very funny, actually. He's on The Daily Show. He is, if you like, sort of John Stewart's sort of key stooge uh, in skits and sketches, but um, very entertaining sort of two headlines about his performance uh, today. One saying, absolute triumph for John Oliver, which was uh, The Guardian headline. And then somebody like Entertainment Weekly had said, ratings hold steady. (laughs) (laughs) British man uh, runs the Daily Show. But no, it was was, because John Stewart is really an institution here. He is how most left of centre Americans get their news and how all teenage boys get their news is through the Daily Show. Uh, so it's highly influential, and uh, John Oliver was, was in the chair, and I think he's going to be in the chair till September or sometime like that, so uh, uh, John Stewart's taking an extended break. And he, so he could be the Piers Morgan of satire. Just imagine that. <laughs> what a thought. He doesn't look entirely unlike you as well, uh, John, so you could, you, know, you, you could always be getting some work as a, 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 the John Oliver stand-in, maybe the, uh, I don't know, Oscars, Golden Globe, something like that. Or the body double for the dangerous bits. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, on that note, Emily, John Oliver lookalike uh, John Plunkett, uh, bids you farewell. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now a warning before we start part three. It contains scenes of gruesome violence. No, it doesn't, of course. But we do discuss the ending to BBC Two drama The Fall. So if you haven't watched it yet, I'm presuming you've watched parts one to four, then maybe just tune out for a while. It's time to talk TV now, and I'm joined by Mr. Sam Wollaston, Guardian TV critic. How are you, Sam? Very well, thank you. Lovely to see you. And uh, first up this week, Channel 4's The Returned. Uh, yes, and I think it's probably the most exciting thing that's around this week. We're talking village in France, bus goes over the cliff, a lot of kids get killed, the village goes into mourning for about three years, and then the kids start coming back. It's a sort of zombie thing, but it's more about kind of they don't walk around like zombies do it's more it's more like it's not a kind of uh shawn of the dead dawn of the dead kind of thing it's more sort of about loss and grief and mourning and a bit of faith in there as well it's french so it's obviously very kind of cool a bit self-conscious takes itself quite seriously but it is actually quite cool and uh it's absolutely gripping there aren't limbs being ripped off and uh, people no, chowing down on other yeah, people's well, uh, actu- internal organs. Well, actually, there, there is a bit of that because <laughs> as this poor village, as well as having um, like all its dead children and other dead people coming back to life, it's also it, it got a serial killer on the loose as well. So it's sort of double bad luck for them. So there is a bit of uh, there's a bit of gruesomeness, but it's more there's more of a, a sort of a feeling about it as a sort of um, grim, bleak feeling. It's actually a bit about it. There's a little bit of the lake. Do you remember the lakes? Uh, it's, it's a bit, I do. Yeah. A bit of that about it. Although it's French, so it's sort of uh, Le, Le Lakes or Le Lac, maybe. <laughs> and actually, there is a lake in it. There's a um, there's a reservoir which I think has something to do with it because. 
there's, there's a dam uh, and we keep going underwater and seeing these sort of dead sheep and there's something odd going on down there but anyway it's completely gripping and uh, I've, I've seen two of the ten and I'm very much involved in it so that's now Sam I hesitate to use the phrase my wife but she doesn't like scary stuff but I convinced her to try and watch uh, The Returned and we got to the bit where the butterfly comes back to life and breaks out of the glass box oh, yeah. and she went oh it's too weird and I had to turn it off so I thought heck I, I've not done very well here I've got about three minutes in yeah so, no it um, is it is it's it's scary it's not kind of uh, jump out of your skin scary it's more sort of there's a sort of creeping scariness about it a creeping darkness that will get you eventually so uh, maybe don't bother with your wife then I mean uh, or the TV show yeah, no, no, <laughs> I forgot no, to yeah, choose no, no. Yeah, maybe I, I mean I don't know what's going on in your marriage but maybe stick to your wife and, and, uh, and, and abandon the TV show well, you talked about Creeping Darkness, which is not a reference to my uh, domestic life, but to another big TV show the week which came to an end, which was BBC Two's The Fall. Yes. Which I thought was uh, fantastic, gripping from beginning to end. Did you manage to watch that with your wife? No, that was entirely that was entirely a private affair. Yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> I don't want to know about that. But, um, yeah, a lot of people seem to be disappointed by the end of it, saying that it was a cop-out and uh, it was obviously just heading towards the next series. But I don't think that's a cop-out at all. I think it was a, that's a very good thing. I think it would have been disappointing if she'd... It would have been anticlimactic if she'd just caught him at the end and that was it. But given that it was clearly a, uh, a pointer to a, uh, another series, um, I think it, they did it very well. It was a very clever, a very clever cliffhanger that left you feeling not cheated. I didn't feel cheated at all. I felt uh, just ready for, for, for more. And everything about it was good, wasn't it? The writing was good. All the all the characters, John Lynch, you know, a guy I remember years ago in Cal, I think, and yeah. uh, J- Julian Anderson. I mean, and um, and the killer as well, fantastic. Yeah, J- uh, Jamie Dornan, a, a brilliant performance, I thought, from him because he, he he managed to do both the kind of family guy that was sort of believable to his children and the sort of um, serial killer really well. So it was sort of almost two performances uh, in one, and I, yeah, fantastic. I think by 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 all of them. Very good, tense, tense drama, and uh, ready for more. And was there? Did you think it was strange? I thought sometimes the the two kind of plot lines, one about police corruption and one about the hunt for the killer, sometimes didn't always come together, or, or yeah. there wasn't that a lot of the corruption stuff was alluded to. Hinted at. Maybe that was deliberate. And I thought the um, police corruption stuff was slightly confusing to the to the main story. I mean, it, it was it, it. Sometimes you couldn't actually see what the point of it was, but uh, and they didn't. It didn't knit together perfectly. I agree. Uh, well, that was the fall. And Sam, give us your third highlight, or maybe after two highlights, this is going to be a low light of your TV week. Yeah, I can't quite decide if it was a highlight or a low light. It's 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 something quite interesting though. It's called uh, Compare Your Life, um, and it's on uh, Channel Four, and it starts Thursday. So it's a Thursday night thing, and it goes on for a few weeks. It's an odd one, really. It's um, there's a guy called Carlton Hood who started uh, one of those price comparison websites, not the Meerkat one. I think it's Confused.com. So he's the guy in it, and basically couples uh, who want to change their life go and see him, and he talks them through a few kind of criteria to do with where they want to live and what they want to do and stuff. And basically, he puts them into a he basically puts them into a price comparison website, but it's not a price comparison; it's like life comparison. And he comes out with three possible lives for them or packages for them because this involves a a a place that they're going to go live and a job that they're going to do. So it's it's sort of, you know, it's a, it's a weird idea that, that, that actually that you can, everything should be rational and not emotional. And you can have, uh, you can, everything boils down to these kind of simple decisions. So he comes out with three possible lives for the, for the first couple and they, 
they go and look at the first one and they decided it's not quite for them and they go to the second one and they eventually uh, plump on one. Can you choose bit, your favourite bits of each? Presumably not. No, because it, it's comes, a job lot. It, it's a job lot and it is a package. So, yeah, and I was wondering that because, you know, in the second one, I thought, well, actually, the job, it was running a cafe seems quite nice, but the house was a bit rubbish. So could they go and look for their own house? No, I don't think so. Um, it's So it's sort of like the, one of those property shows, but it's it's a lot more than that because it's not just finding you a new house. It's finding you a new everything. The only thing I thought it could add, they could add to it is um, they could add finding you a new partner as well, especially in this one because they didn't seem to be getting on that well. So I thought you could ch- sort of chuck in a new partner and make it into a dating show as well. I mean, the whole idea is completely ridiculous, obviously, because you know, you, obviously, emotions are very important to making big life choices. It's not all about it's not all about ticking boxes. So it's crazy, but it, it is actually weirdly very compelling television and very Channel Four. But I- very Channel Four, yeah. It's like it's sort of Channel Four. It's 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 like an amalgamation of previous Channel shows. It's like a horrible hybrid of Channel Four shows that weirdly is totally compelling. And those kind of shows rise or fall on the on the presenter, whether it's um, Phil Spencer on the one hand and whoever and yeah. K- Kirsty what's her name or Gokwain on the other but is he any good yeah he's quite good actually uh he's sort of as you'd expect someone who started a price comparison website it's all these people who who who've clearly made loads of money and feel they have to come and come and go on television which is I suppose what dragons do on dragons then you know they've he's probably bought he probably sold he's probably sold up ages ago he's got so much money and now he wants to you know get 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 known a bit but yeah he's quite good Okay, well, Sam Williston, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Sam Williston, Emily Bell, Steve Ackerman and Sam Delaney. You can leave your comments on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Next week's show will come all the way from Cannes. No international festival of creativity is complete without it. See you on the Quasette. We'll have a croissant and chew the quad. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Chew the quad, cut, quassel. Use whichever one you like, Matt.